Well, now we're going to turn to the Word of God, and we're going to be in First Thessalonians chapter 5, and we're going to look at that last uh, section today and wrap up our series in First Thessalonians, verses 12 to 28, and uh, Megan and Ahava will be doing the reading for us this morning. He's not the only one that embarrasses himself. Good morning. All right, let's read. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good and abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read read. To all the brothers, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. Thanks, ladies. All right, let's pause just for a moment and pray. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We know we would not have it were it not for the great sacrifice of many, many people. And you've given us your word. You've preserved it across the centuries because we need the word. We need to hear your voice. Without it, we would be in darkness. And so you have shown your great love and care for your people in that way. That we might know you. That we might see you. That we might be saved. Thank you for your word. I pray now that um, as we come to it, that uh, you would open our eyes, open our ears. Again, let us not be hearers only, but doers of your precious word. Holy Spirit, put a watch over my lips. Let what I say be right and true before you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. All right, <clears throat> so we're wrapping up our series on First Thessalonians this morning. And as we've gone through, you've seen very clearly, and we've talked about this quite a number of times, uh, explicitly the last couple of weeks, but you've seen a recurring theme, the return of Jesus, that one day Christ will return again. 
Many today are talking about the return of Jesus. I cannot tell you how many times I've been in conversation with someone and they say something like, the Lord's coming soon. He's coming soon. This is on the minds and hearts of people everywhere. Jesus is coming back. And that is our hope, isn't it? The scriptures say, set your hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed to you in that day. We look forward to the return of Jesus. There are many stories of folk that tried to predict the return of Jesus. Usually when we think of such folks, we imagine, you know, maybe someone with a few screws loose or something like that. We have a certain image of of, of folks that tend to try and predict the, the exact day and time. But what about a farmer? We tend to think of farmers as very practical, down-to-earth, hard-working people. Think of them as being honest. Would you imagine a church-going farmer being someone who might make a stab at trying to predict the coming of Jesus. Typically, we wouldn't think of a farmer in that way. But the most well-known, famous case of an end times prediction came from a farmer. A A Vermont farmer at that. A man who lived in Pulteney, Vermont in the early 1800s. There were other religious leaders and prophets that were around in those days in that region, but none were nearly as popular as the farmer named William Miller. Felicia, you can pull up that image that I put on the flash drive. There he is. There is Mr. Miller. And he's got um, he's got a Bible open right there. Maybe you can't read it. It says Daniel. Daniel, the book of Daniel. We'll talk a little bit about William Miller as we go along here for a moment. Miller had recently converted to Christianity after serving as a captain in the War of 1812. And he became very interested in the book of Daniel and became convinced after some time of study in Daniel and Revelation and other places that he had unlocked the secret date to Christ's return. For several years, he didn't tell anyone of his discovery He told uh, the Lord that just like Moses, you know, I'm not a good communicator. How would I talk to people about these things that you've shown me in the scriptures? How would I even do that? He wasn't sure, but eventually he became so burdened that he felt he must share with others. And so he did. Eventually, over time, became something of a celebrity with the help of some pastors and some other marketers and creative people he became quite a celebrity estimates of his following range between 50 and 100,000 followers over the course of just a few years now there are churches today that have that many people and we think well that's a big group but that's not you know astronomical but in early 1800s this was a huge huge One interesting article I found that tells the story says this, quote, tens of thousands of people expected the world to come to an end. They were followers of William Miller, a man who claimed to know the date of Jesus' second coming. 
Many Millerites, as they came to be known, quit their jobs and sold all their possessions to prepare for the day when Christ would return to earth and gather them up from heaven and purify the rest of the world in an all-consuming fire. As the date approached, a great comet blazed across the Massachusetts sky and the number of believers grew and grew. On October 22nd, this would have been 1840. 1844, the Millerites donned white robes and climbed mountains and climbed trees to even speed up their ascension into heaven when the Lord returned. End quote. He put together charts describing his predictions. I've actually got one. You can find these online. If you're interested, you come look at it after the service. Really fascinating material. He put together charts, pamphlets were distributed, and there was all sorts of energy surrounding this time. One account even tells the story of one of Miller's followers running up to Ralph Waldo Emerson. Maybe you've heard this of Ralph Waldo Emerson. He was a transcendentalist, kind of, you know, big into nature and God is in nature and being one with nature. Ran into to Emerson and told him the world is going to end. To which Emerson responded, the end of the world does not affect me. I can get along without it. That was his response. Um, of course, that day came and went. Jesus did not return on the much anticipated day. And uh, Miller and some of his followers got together and came up with another day. Uh, I think it was like six months Later, and Jesus, of course, did not come on that day either. That day is now known as the Great Disappointment. The Great Disappointment. And uh, for some, the movement continued. Actually, the um, Seventh-day Adventists um, are now, uh, they uh, have their roots in the Millerite movement and some other groups as well. But for some, the movement continued and they found ways to reinterpret Miller's predictions. But for a great many, they left the movement completely disillusioned. Isn't it sad that so much destruction and so much sorrow was the result of a glorious doctrine? A good thing, something that God has given to us for the encouragement and the strengthening And the building up of his church led to such disillusionment and disappointment. The doctrine of Christ's return is a glorious teaching. As we saw last week, Christ will return and will rescue his people. He will snatch them up, meet them in the clouds and continue down to the earth in a victory march as we saw last week. This is magnificent, beautiful hope-filled teaching for God's people. Yet here in the case of Miller, it brought tremendous heartache and destruction, though he no doubt was very sincere. Very sincere. One lesson we can learn from that moment in history is that a good teaching, wrongly applied, can do great harm. Right? Here we begin to see the basic difference between knowledge and wisdom. Maybe you've heard this distinction before. It's one thing to know a lot of stuff, knowledge. 
It's another thing to be able to put it into practice and to live it out. Wisdom. There's a difference. We could give lots of examples of that. I was tempted to write out a host of examples of good things that maybe have been used in the wrong sort of way. But I'll resist that temptation. So in this last final section here in 1 Thessalonians 5, I believe that one of the things that Paul is doing here is giving us an idea about how we should apply this great doctrine of the return of Christ. He's talked a lot about Jesus coming back. So what do we do with that teaching? We looked a little bit at it last week, but some more this week. What did the Millerites do with this incredible knowledge about the second coming? What did they do? Many of them quit their jobs, sold their property, and eventually ended up in despair. Is that what God wants of us as we wait upon his return? Paul is going to give us a different set of instructions, unlike those that seem to be what was laid out by Miller and his associates. Last week's two sermons touched on these ideas as well. In last week's sermon, some of you will remember we ended with the truth that for the Christian, the best days are ahead of us, not behind us. That's kind of why we left it last week, right? Our best days are ahead of us. So we shouldn't be grumblers and complainers. We shouldn't, like, like me so many days, oh, if we could only go back 20 years, 50 years, whatever it would be. I wasn't around 50 years ago, but you get what I mean, right? The glory days are in some time past. But that's not true. The glory days are ahead of us. The best days are ahead. And that's what we saw last week. But practically, what does this mean? What does that look like? Jesus is coming back. How then shall we live? First thing we're going to see is that there's work to be done. So far from abandoning our jobs and abandoning our posts and waiting up in the mountains and the hills, there's a lot of work to be done as we wait upon the Lord. Many people have this idea. That's point number one, by the way. There's work to be done. Many people have this idea about what things will be like when Jesus returns. They think we're just going to be floating around on the clouds and hanging out in the sky. Something like that. If you were to even just go into Google and type in, you know, second coming or, or heaven or something like that, you're probably going to get all these images of, of people in the clouds and, and things like that. But the Bible's picture is very different. When Jesus returns, one of the things he's going to do is renew the world. Right? And there's a lot of debate around that passage we looked at last week. Some people believe that uh, there's this event where we'll be caught up with the Lord and remain up in the clouds and, and be gone for a season only to return later. Some people read it that way. Again, I shared last week that that's not my reading of it. Others believe that Christ, when he comes and continues down in the victory march unto the earth, that that's the time where he'll um, set up the new heavens and the new earth, kind of summing up and wrapping up all of history. Others believe that's the start of this thing called the millennial kingdom, which I'm not going to get into all that right now. But one of the things we know, how whatever view you hold, that at some point, God's going to renew the world. He's going to make it new. Just as Jesus' body was raised from the dead, so too all the world will be made new. Instead of this earth being balled up like a piece of trash and thrown out, it will be renewed. 
In other words, we're not going to be in the clouds with Jesus, is my point. You know, spirits, disembodied spirits for the rest of eternity, playing harps forever and ever. We'll be here on the new earth with the Lord. And there will be work to do. Work is not a curse. It's not a part of the curse, though some days we sure feel like it, right? It's not a part of the curse. The frustration, the futility, the pain that come with work were the curse. But we will be working, rest assured. So what do you think that means for us now? What does that mean for us now? Well, let's look at what Paul has to say in verses 12 through 15 of our passage. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace amongst yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Paul shows us here that there is work to do. There's a lot of things he says in that section. But one of the clearest things there is there's work to do. Some are doing spiritual work. Some are leading, teaching, right? Guiding the, the, the congregation, the body of Christ. Paul says they should be honored and respected. Right? Some are doing spiritual work. But others are doing all kinds of other work, right? There's all sorts of important work to be done. None should be idle, Paul says. Right? Admonish the idle. Apparently this was a major issue in this particular congregation. Because he's going to pick it up again in 2 Thessalonians. Which maybe some point in the future we'll look at 2 Thessalonians. He's going to pick up that issue again. But none should be idle, he says. We all have something we can be doing, even if you are retired. You can volunteer at the food shelf. Make meals or blankets for the homeless. Join one of our teams here at the church. Sign up sheets in the back. Okay, there you go. My little shameless plug in there. Some sign up sheets in the back if you want to join one of our teams here at the church. Build relationships with your neighbors and share Jesus with them. Be a prayer warrior. There are many things that we can be doing. And that's just scratching the surface there. There are some that will struggle with this. And Paul says we're to be patient with them and not to quarrel with them. We are to do good to everyone regardless. Some will do many things. Some will be very active. Others will struggle. We are to be patient. But there is work to be done. Many of the Millerites missed this point, quit their jobs, sold their possessions as they waited upon the Lord. A noble thing to do in one way, this idea of, you know, letting go of the, of the, of the earthly things and focusing on the spiritual things. There's something noble about that. But they missed that this life is actually a great dress rehearsal for the life to come. You know what we're doing right now, folks? We're preparing for eternity. We're preparing for the next chapter. Work is going to be a part of that chapter. So there's much to be done here and now. We must be busy now with the work of God. As we wait upon the Lord to return, let us ask ourselves, what work can we be doing to serve the Lord? That's point number one. Second thing, let us be rejoicing, be thankful people as we wait upon the Lord to return. This is point number two. Let's be rejoicing, thankful people. Verses 16 through 18, if you take a quick look there. Rejoice always. 
Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You know, Scripture memory is a practice we should all have. We should be laboring to memorize Scripture. You want an easy couple of verses to start with? Right here. Rejoice always. Boom! You memorized a verse. Can't get much easier than that. And what a good one to remember. To rejoice always. When we fall into that mindset of the glory days are past, it's just downhill from here, or whatever the you know pervading mentality is out there, in that moment, speak to yourself. Rejoice always, says the Lord. I have so much to be thankful for. Much to rejoice over. Here's a very few short verses that even the, the oldest of us should have no trouble uh, remembering. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Boom! You've hit three verses right there. Joy is something that should characterize the Christian community. In that time and place, joy was not a characteristic of many other religions. There was one around Paul's day that often spoke of joy and happiness. How many of you have heard of the Stoics? Have you heard that before? Was Stoics. Stoics are, today we think of them as people who are unemotional. Something might happen and, and someone's just really kind of walking through it, really composed and unemotional. And we say... Why so stoic? We think of that as, you know, kind of what stoicism is all about, being unemotional. Well, the Stoics actually were not opposed to emotion. Actually, one of the core tenets of their philosophy had to do with happiness, had to do with happiness and joy. But the way to joy and happiness for the Stoic was different than the Christian way. The roots were different would be a distraction at this point to get into all the details of stoicism and all of that. But Paul here says to the believers, rejoice always, giving thanks in all circumstances and so on. Why, why can he say that? Why can Paul say this to this people that are facing all kind of trials and difficulties and troubles? What's Paul assuming here? He just takes it for granted that this is a reasonable possibility. Just rejoice always. That living a joy-filled life, despite one's circumstances, is possible. He just takes that for granted. Kind of sounds absurd today in our present climate, doesn't it? Even if we just were to go across this room and sample the challenges that people face in here. It would seem absurd to say that. Many of us have all kinds of really challenging things we're facing. Many of us know of something called depression, and maybe we deal with that on our, in, in our own way. Depression is spreading rapidly worldwide. I was reading a, a journal on this uh, earlier, and, and depression has been forecasted to become the leading cause of disability worldwide in 10 years. Hundreds of millions of people across the world deal with what we call depression. That's kind of a big tent word for all sorts of uh, different struggles and whatnot. But there's been many significant efforts and investments made to treat depression. But the research shows that it's not really made much of a difference. 
Many who suffer from depression have experiences of emptiness and sadness and loss of meaning in life. This is one of the common refrains for folks that battle depression. Life feels meaningless. Such an emptiness. Hundreds of millions of people suffer from depression today. Yet here Paul tells the believers who are being persecuted violently by the authorities in Thessalonica, rejoice always and give thanks in all circumstances. How can Paul do that? How can Paul say that to us today who have this letter? This is for us too. How can he say that? Because Paul knows some things that many then and now have forgotten. Meaning is so important. Meaning. What motivated the early pilgrims to push through incredibly harsh winters and disease when they settled in early America? What gave meaning to that for them? Well, they wanted to practice their religion freely, right? They wanted to worship their God in the way that they feel moved and called to do. So they suffered because they had purpose and vision and meaning in it all. It wasn't empty for them. What motivates a woman to go through with a painful childbirth? The belief that that pain has meaning. You're bringing new life into the world. It has meaning. It's not just pain. What motivates an athlete to train and practice hours and hours through complete mental and physical exhaustion? The belief that the suffering produces something good. I'm getting better at my task, at the at my competition, more likely to do well because of this pain. There's meaning, has meaning. The Stoics couldn't offer that perspective. There was no sense of meaning in their philosophy. And I think our world today is lost in the same trap. So many are without meaning or purpose. What's, why are we here? If it's all just random. There's no God. He's not there. No one cares. It's just a big junkyard of stuff that somehow a tornado blew through, through and here we are. That's the way a lot of people see the world. We offer all kinds of self-help tools and many doctors do their best to help patients with the tools they have. And there are medical in- interventions that make a difference. Not denying that. But at the end of the day, the epidemic of meaninglessness is something that a doctor cannot ultimately fix. Maybe counseling, maybe, you know, there are doctors out there who are doing good work in that. But ultimately, at bottom, the meaning problem can only be solved by God. The meaning question, where we come from, why are we here? What's the point of all this is a question that can only be answered by God. And joy is rooted in meaning and ultimate meaning can only come from our creator. God is the one who gives meaning. God is the one who gives purpose. Take away God and you're just left with stuff, meaningless stuff. No direction and no purpose. Paul says, not only is there a God, but he loves you. And he gave his only son for you. 
And his name is Jesus. One day, Jesus is going to return for everyone who puts their trust in him. And no matter what happens today or tomorrow, whether you're poor or rich, weak or strong, single or married, black or white, if you're in Christ, this is your hope. And that gives meaning to whatever you're going through. You may not understand it, but you have a hope. You have some kind of a purpose in the midst of it. The Stoics couldn't offer that. And when you get that, when you get this sense of meaning and purpose, that there's a creator who's guiding and has a plan for you, joy comes when you get that. And joy is something deeper and stronger than circumstances. So God tells us here today in this wonderful letter, rejoice always. Give thanks in all circumstances, even if it's through tears. Oh, how we need to cry more. We need to weep. And we've talked about that in previous weeks, about the need for grieving. I'm not saying ignore all the issues. That's not not what I'm saying. But we can find purpose and hope in the midst of whatever we face because we have God in our life. And he's got a plan. Maybe you're thinking, I just can't do that. I I don't know how to do this. This is where we begin to understand our very deep and very real need for God's help. This is not a self-help program. I'm not preaching, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and figure it out and just smile. Just smile, even though it's painful. Smile. That's not what I'm saying. Okay? It's hard. We need God's help. So turn to the Lord. Maybe even now for you, turn to the Lord and say, help me. I so desperately want this joy. I want this thankful heart in all circumstances. Help me, God. We need a helper. We need power from God to be able to do these things. And this leads to our third point. Be open to the working of the Holy Spirit in your life. Apart from God, apart from His Spirit, we can do nothing. Be open to the working of the Holy Spirit. Look at verses 19 through 22 with me. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So what do you think the thousands that had left homes and jobs waiting upon the fulfillment of Miller's words felt when that day came and passed? What do you think they felt? I mean, the agony was probably incredible. I mean, to, to be so convinced that you would leave your job and sell your property that Jesus was going to return on a particular day and for it not to happen. Can you imagine the heartbreak? It would have been incredible. One Millerite, a person named Hiram Edson, wrote, Our fondest hopes and expectations were blasted, and such a spirit of weeping came over us as I never experienced before. We wept and we wept until the day dawn. So they were waiting until midnight of that day. And when midnight came and went, 
This is what he says happened. Thousands and thousands openly wept and wept and wept all the night long until the morning. And I'm sure many walked away from faith. If you can imagine, some maybe remained, and, but were probably so disillusioned they never wanted to hear another word of prophecy again. So probably had some that just left and said, this is all a bunch of junk. I don't know what to do with it. Don't talk to me about this Jesus stuff anymore. Others maybe, as we know they did, formed their own groups and whatnot. And there was probably some that were like, yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I believe in the Bible and in Jesus and he's coming back, but don't talk to me ever again about this prophecy stuff. I mean, I'd see that as a very rational reaction to something like this. I remember getting really sick off some take, takeout when I lived in Charleston some years ago before me and Megan met and were married. And every time I would smell that particular food after that, I would gag. It was bad. I mean, even now thinking about it. Ooh. Maybe that was the reaction when these believers heard a word from the Lord. I've got a word for you. You know? And they were like, no, I've been burned. I don't trust you anymore. Maybe that was their reaction. Or when they heard a reading out of Daniel or Revelation, it brought back all of those memories from their heartache. Paul tells the believers here, don't be like that. Don't be like that, he says. Today there are many abuses in this area as well. False prophets abound. Again, we could take some time to to talk about that. I'm not going to do that right here. But many churches have made a laughing stock of the Holy Spirit. Megan and I were watching a video of a, of a worship service the other night, and in the middle of the worship service, a man, I kid you not, ran up, and they had a, a full baptismal font, and just jumped in the baptismal font, and was thrashing around in the baptismal font. And it's like, what? while the music's going on, there's people running around the room. One man came up, took his jacket off, hit the guy in the head who was singing the song with his jacket. All in the name of the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, that's an abuse. That's an abuse. And abuses like those actually quench the Spirit. It's so distracting. It's total chaos, pandemonium. The Greek word here for quench in verse 19 is a word that means to extinguish the fire. And one of the biblical images of the Holy Spirit is fire. Quenching the Spirit of God is to extinguish it. We can do that through sin. We can do that through like what I just described, right? Being so distracting. No one's thinking about God anymore. No one's worshiping Christ. It's a pandemonium. That's quenching the spirit. Perhaps there were abuses happening around that had caused the church to be hesitant towards the spirit's work. Maybe there were some things going on. And they were just like, no, don't talk to me about that stuff. I can't believe it. I won't listen to it. Think of the Millerites. Again, what do you think some of their followers might say the next time someone came around and said, the Spirit of God just revealed something to me? They might say, no, I don't want to hear it. Instead of being completely closed off to the work of the Holy Spirit, believers are called here to test everything. This is the proper reaction. To test the Spirit's. Throughout history, many have risen up claiming to have some new teaching or claiming to be the Christ. We must evaluate their claims with the Scriptures. This is the appropriate biblical response when someone comes with a word or with a thought claiming from the Holy Spirit. 
What this means is that as we wait upon the Lord, we must be students of our Bibles, be devoted to the teaching. How else are we to know when we're confronted with a false teaching? We don't know the truth. In these last days, don't throw away your Bible. When you sell your possessions, don't let your Bible be one of them. Okay? Don't neglect sitting under the faithful preaching and teaching of God's Word. These will help you know if something is a work of the Holy Spirit or not. Finally, having done these things, my final point to you this morning as I wrap up here is put your complete trust in Jesus. So we're going to wrap it up here. Put your complete trust in Jesus. Having done the work God has given you to do, not being idle, working for the Lord, after striving to live in the joy of God and give thanks in everything, having been in your Bible and testing the spirits, having done all of those things, as we've just laid them out, now put your complete trust in Jesus. Having done all those things, this is the fourth thing Paul says we must do as we wait upon the day of the Lord. Put your complete trust in Jesus. Look at verses 23 to the end quickly. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He goes on to speak of prayer and greeting the brothers with a holy kiss. And he ends with these words. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's it. May the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Paul rests at the end. Having said all these things, having commanded them and challenged them to do all of these things, he ends with rest in the grace of God. He says, yes, there's stuff for us to do. Yes, there's a lot going on. Yes, there's all these things we need to be thinking about. But at the end of the day, it's God who must keep us. It's God who must sanctify us. It's God who is faithful. When we are faithless even, He is faithful. It's God who's doing the deepest work. As I was working on this final point, Noah came to my mind. Have you ever thought about Noah? I know you've read the story, you know the story, but have you ever thought deeply about what that would have been like for Noah? Just imagine Noah working on the boat For years and years and years. Because God told him rain was coming and you need to build a big boat. Took him years to build that boat. People are looking at him. This guy's crazy. What's he doing? He's out there thinking. Just imagine Noah's like, okay, it's got to be this big and it's got to be made of this and covered with this. And he lays out all the instructions and he's trying to do his best to do what God has asked him to do. I'm sure Noah checked and rechecked everything, made sure that he was doing it just as God wanted him to. But I'm sure he made some mistakes and maybe this part was a little longer than that part and probably nailed his finger a handful of times and wanted to give up and throw in the towel. But when the rain came and the floods hit, was Noah's confidence in how well he had built that boat, built that boat? Was that where his confidence was? Yep, followed all the instructions. Put it all together just as you want to check, recheck, triple check, quadruple checked. 
Was his confidence in all the work he had done? Or was his hope in the materials that he used? Yep, got the right lumber, wood, you know, the the pressure quotients, and he's thinking, you know, is he thinking about all that stuff? No. No, he wasn't. Noah's confidence was in God. His trust was that God was going to keep him. God was going to keep it afloat. God was going to make it work. Why? Because God is faithful. God is faithful. God had promised him that. And God has promised us the same. Paul ends with, he's faithful. He will do it. Trust completely in the Lord Jesus. And when the floods come, he will be enough. But in the meantime, as we wait on that day, whatever comes, pray. In the meantime, read. In the meantime, greet one another with a hug and a kiss. In the meantime, be busy with the Lord's work. Jesus is coming back. May he find us doing all of these things. Amen. Amen. Now we're going to respond with a song, but I'd like to pray. So I'm going to invite Deb to come up and we're going to pray together. Let's pray. Oh God, there is a lot of things that you call us to do, but we are clay pots. We're broken vessels, weak, needy people. And we fall so very short. But you nonetheless have called us. And as we think about your calling on our lives, to be busy with your work and to to do all the things we've spoken of today, at the end of the day, we need to rest in the grace of God. And I pray that would be our response. Yes, be busy. Yes, do all these things. But let us trust Finally, ultimately, completely in Jesus Christ and who he is and all that he has done for us. He truly is the ark. He is the one who will rescue. He is the perfect one whose work will stand up to any test. We trust in him and all that he has done for us. So God, as we think about all these things, as we sing this final song, Our prayer is that you would come now and help us, that you would be God within us, not God without us, but God within us, stirring, helping, strengthening, enabling, giving us grace even now as we sing to just rest in all that you are for us in Jesus, spirit of the living God, fall afresh, we pray on us, amen.